0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Mario T. Garcia, author of The Chicano Generation Testimonios of the Movement, published by the University of California Press in 2015. Dr. Garcia is a professor of Chicano Studies and History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Where his research and teaching focus on U.S.-Mexico migration and Chicano and Latino community formation, identity, and politics. Professor Garcia has a distinguished and prolific list of publications, including the highly influential Mexican-Americans, Leadership, Ideology, and Identity, uh, as well as Memories of Chicano History, the Life and Narrative of Bert Corona, And more recently, Blowout, Sal Castro, and the struggle for educational justice, and the Latino generation, Voices of the New America. Dr. Garcia has been honored with a number of awards, fellowships, and distinctions for his scholarship, including the South uh, two times recipient of the Southwest Book Award for his publications, "Desert Immigrants," "The Mexicans of El Paso," and the previously mentioned "Mexican Americans." Hello, Mario, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. <laughs>
1: Thank you, David, so much. Thank you for having me on the program. I look forward to our discussion.
0: Me too. Thank you. And uh, I was wondering, will you begin our discussion today by telling us a little bit about your personal background and your academic and professional trajectory?
1: Well, I was uh, born in El Paso, Texas, uh, and uh, grew up there. I uh, went to, uh, my father was an immigrant from Mexico, he was uh, ran a used furniture store in South El Paso for many years, my mother was a U.S.-born Mexican-American, had a high school education, and we were raised not in the hardcore audio of South El Paso, but in transitional neighborhoods literally north of the track, and my mother insisted that we go to Catholic schools, so I went mm. to elementary Catholic schools and uh, Catholic boys' school in El Paso. And uh I had wanted to go to a Catholic college but didn't have the funding for it, so I stayed locally and went to what is now the University of Texas, El Paso where I got my B.A. and MA in uh history. And uh then after about a year uh I came to California. I was actually recruited uh to as a lecturer in history at San Jose State University in the late sixties. And then from there, I matriculated down to UC San Diego, where I did my PhD mm-hmm. in the next five years, and then was recruited here to UC Santa Barbara. In between, I taught three years at Yale, and uh, but I've been in uh, UC Santa Barbara for, for many years. And uh, when I was a graduate student, I was already affected by the Chicano movement, so I wanted to do a dissertation on Chicano history, and eventually focused on the history of early Mexican immigrants in El Paso in the late 19th, early 20th century, the first big wave of mass immigration which what I refer to now as the immigrant generation in Chicano history, mm-hmm. and focused on my own hometown of El Paso, which I didn't know a lot about other than what I heard through family lore.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I discovered, of course, that it was a major uh, entryway at the time for uh, most Mexican immigrants because right. they were transferred up from central Mexico and northern Mexico by the uh, Mexican Central Railroad. So I did a dissertation, revised it, that became my first book that you mentioned, Desert Immigrants, and then I've kind of gone up through the 20th century because I never felt that, unlike other historians, that I felt that I had the luxury of specializing in a particular period because we still knew so little about many different other in Chicano history, I felt I didn't have that luxury, so I said, right.
2: well,
1: I'm going to move up and I'm going to study the children of those immigrants and that let me just study the Mexican-American generation in the 30s through the 50s, and I've done several studies there. And then I went to study my own generation, the Chicano generation, because I was, in a sense, a product, an intellectual product of the Chicano movement and part of the first generation of professionally trained Chicano historians into the 70s, so I... Mm-hmm. Embarked on my study of the Chicana movement. You mentioned the South Castro book, and the book we'll discuss today, the a generation. So, and then you know, I kind of leapfrog and studied my own millennial students in the <laughs> book that you also mentioned, called the Latino generation, voices of the New America. So, using a generational approach that I began to develop uh, over the years, I uh, pretty much have spanned the 20th century and now have leaped into the New uh, millennium.
0: Right. You mentioned the generational approach, and that's one of the the primary themes that, that this book and I think your writings fall under. Uh, there's a there's, so there's the generational approach or model that you've uh, identified, and it's, that's been you know again a, a a key theme throughout your scholarship. And there's also the focus on leadership. Uh, will you um, explain for our audience? Uh, the generational model that you've identified and applied to your scholarship and then, uh, you know, the role of, of leadership within, you know, that model.
1: Okay. Well, so I, I began to conceptualize uh, uh, generations as a way of understanding periodization in Chicano history. In other words, what with the important historical periods that we can uh, – focus on for their own particular characteristics. And after I had done my book on immigrants in El Paso and began to kind of, as I mentioned, conceptualize that as the immigrant generation in Chicano history because, as I have to explain to people, because obviously we have continuous immigration for the most part through the 20th century and still do, but the difference is that that immigrant generation in the early 20th century uh, uh, thoroughly dominated with exceptions like northern New Mexico, Mm -hmm. the uh, Mexican, uh, presence in the United States. Immigrants came, they overwhelmed the 19th century. Californios and Tejanos and other Mexican Americans who were already here in the 19th century and they became the dominant population. And no other later period in American, history, in Chicano history, do immigrants play such a dominant role. The L.A. goes from a 19th century Mexican to the Mexican immigrant uh, community. Uh, beyond that period of uh, the early 20th century of course the immigrants remained in a very large uh very large numbers but they now have to coexist with US born Mexican Americans mm. by 19- Forty, the majority of immigrants in the United States are now U.S. born, and that continues up to our own day. There's still sizable numbers of immigrants, but
2: right. not
1: the minority population. So, in uh, you know, conceptualizing that uh, period as a period of immigrant generation, well, then I began to, you know, examine well, what other uh, generations, and 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 when, when I use the term generation, it's not just biological, but also as, a, as political and historical generation right. although they do tend to coincide with biological generation, but they are transitional figures <clears> that don't necessarily fit comfortably into their political generation. You mentioned that right. Cal Castro, biologically, really is part of the Mexican-American generation, but politically and historically he's part of the Chicano generation. Uh-huh. So I, I, I needed a way of periodizing, of understanding different in Chicano history where you see particular differences and and um, and evolutions of 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 identity so a generational approach uh, gave me that perspective of in the early 20th century, you have a predominantly immigrant population. In the 30s and 50s, you have now the rise of a U.S. born Mexican American generation, the so called Mexican American generation. Of course, then you have a whole new wave of political activists in the 60s and 70s. How do we understand them? Well, you know, we understand them as part of a new generation, a Chicano generation. I think, too, David, the other reason I choose a generational approach is that by doing so, it gives me a sense of social change. It gives me a
2: sense mm-hmm. of
1: political change. How change takes place and how you see that change within between different generations. So that's something right. that i focused on. The issue of leadership, of course, has come out of that because in studying generations and especially studying political generations, uh, like they did in my Mexican American book, which is not a study of the biological Mexican American generation, but the study of new leadership. Right. It's the same thing with the Finchigama generation book. You know, it's a study of, of, of leaders who emerge out of that generation. And, uh, so I focused on the role of leadership within these generational cohorts. And, uh, I find that important because all political, social movements, uh, you know, uh, needs leadership. Uh, leadership emerges, and it's not from an elitist point of view, but it's
2: mm-hmm.
1: the fact of uh, of these of movements, of social political movements, that some people rise to the challenge and emerge as, uh, as key leaders, and so those leaders are also a window to look at social change and generational change, and so I emphasize the important role of leadership in, in Chicano history and by doing so, you know what? It's also important because uh, for our students, for our communities, it's important that we know that we've had leaders, that we've had important leaders. And just
2: right.
1: so curious emerge in the movement that people are more aware of, like Jesus Chavez, work but going back in time, we've had a number of major political and community leaders that people need to know, our kids need to know, it. our students need to know them. Who are they? Because that gives them a sense, as Sal Castro often used to say, a sense of pride that they are part of history. They are part of American history Right. because they've had leaders who have been part of making important changes in this country.
0: I think that's a great uh, point. You know, the focus on leadership in telling a narrative, particularly in our in the way education you know just the, is um, you know, <laughs> taught and kind of proceeds in the United States K through 12 education it uh, you know the connecting leaders to a portion of American history you know do not you know uh, that allows you to you know plug them into a, a spot at, at to some extent does provide I think a, a very necessary. Uh, type of first of all coherency, but like you said you know a uh, a, a source of identification right for um, people of, of various ethnic backgrounds to be able to see themselves and their people as actors in mm-hmm. you know this historical narrative, if you will yeah. and and, and um, you know there's other, obviously historians talk about a lot of the problems with <laughs> you know how we 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 define narratives and, and stuff like that but it is nonetheless a a you know a truism that um you know this is kind of the way that that history is told um uh, predominantly particularly in K through 12 and even you know higher education yeah. you know this focus on yeah. a you know chronologies on uh key peoples key I, you know uh, ideas uh, events etc and um and and I so I agree and I I Appreciate your your approach because it seems to me uh, you, you mentioned earlier, as you were you know a, a rising scholar, emerging scholar, you didn't have the luxury of say the generation that I'm a part no. of, right? Where we have experienced some. Um, Oh, I don't know what, uh, uh, 30, 40 years of Chicano scholarship, of re- rather recent <laughs> Chicano scholarship, right? And uh, so, uh, where we are able to now, those of, again, I'm speaking of my generation, say of this, the scholars are able to benefit from a generational perspective like that, which you have provided as a starting point, right, as a basis. Right. Whereas, you know, so leaders, I'm sorry, uh, studies since books like yours and those of your generation have delved into a lot of other particularities within these generations. So they're not so much, I think, as you've started to imply, they're not so much very rigid categories, um, but they do provide coherency. They do provide direction that allow us to see the development of uh, right ideas that don't emerge from whole cloth, but are dependent upon right previous people, previous ideas, et cetera, but are... Um, transitioning right from. Yeah. Um, no, the
1: other thing that I try to emphasize is that uh, people make history. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, they
1: right. Make history as uh, individuals, but they're as part of uh, broader social struggles and social movements. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is important to get a sense of uh, that, that people make history. So if people make history, you can make history.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a great point. Uh, one other thing I wanted to um, bring up about the the generational model because it's it, it has been highly influential. Uh, I, I was recently speaking just of, I think about a month or two ago with uh, Carlos Blanton about his recent uh, biography of Ah uh, of George Sanchez, and uh, you know in his book he mentions how influential your model has been, and uh, essentially it's it's it's. it's Stood the test of time, so to speak. Um, there hasn't been a, a um, perhaps a more convincing or um, useful model that has been, you know, presented and ha- has stuck. Um, so one thing that men- i mentioned, I've I've wondered about. The model is, um, and we started to talk about this, or you know, the, the distinctions between generations. How they're they're not, you know, they are kind of more guideposts. I think, and this is my interpretation. You can correct me. They seem to be more guideposts, not essentially fixed in time, because as you mentioned, someone could have been born like a Sal Castro, right? Who uh, you know belongs biologically to, to one generation, but kind of identified with another. And I, I thought about that with my own personal experience, and those say maybe born in the these uh, you know late seventies or the eighties that are kind of in between between. between the chicano generation and the you know latino generation which really isn't really for you know some what 20 years later the the millennials um and um and so so i guess the, the question was is um could you talk a little bit about that, how people can be sort of be born, say, in the late 70s and 80s, and yet kind of even during that time identify maybe more as even Mexican-American as opposed to Chicano? Can you? So can you just speak about that? What what causes do you think uh, maybe one person to be, well, actually born in a later period, but maybe they they identify with the previous generation or even a generation that's just emerging, so to, so to speak?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's. You know, it has to deal with context, you know, where where one is located and what the, the influences of let's say a previous uh, historical political generation was, you know, and so maybe that uh, that plays itself out uh, in some respects. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it does, for example, in the Latino generation book that I did, and of the uh, 13 of, of my former students that I included in terms of their life stories through college years, uh, I don't recall that a single one identified as Chicano or Chicano. They, they,
2: uh-huh. they,
1: that's a term that for them is not particularly relevant. And so that's why as they, I mean, they they'll you ask him, well, what's your background? If you're ethnic, background?" do know if they're Mexican or Salvadoran. But at the same time, in talking with them, you get a sense that they are,
2: uh,
1: you know, they do identify with, much in a broader way, as uh, as Latinos.
2: Uh-huh. And,
1: uh, because they're in a, in a way of new technology and global migrations and greater diversity of um, distribution of um, people of Latin American background throughout the country. You know, they're in, a, they're in the rise of Spanish language media, with, uh, media which you know uh, addresses a broader pan-Latino audience. They have a larger sense of themselves as being Latino and, mm-hmm. and not And so, you know, each generation you know has to... Create its own sense of uh, identity. Um, having said that, there are some within what I would call the Latino generation, because I know it because they're like, too, who do identify as Chicano. Mm-hmm. And maybe right. that has to do with their own particular background, maybe it has to do with their particular political uh, orientation. So right. yeah, you can have these kind of crossovers consistently in terms of identity between generations. Having said that, as a historian, I have to, of course, take that into consideration, but also as myself, you know, but overarching, over, over right, L, is the right. way that we still kind of put a handle on uh, new generation, what we would consider to be new generational periods, to give them a kind of uh, uh, greater conceptualization. Of course, anytime time you generalize or reach for generalization, of course, you're going to do injury to, you know, to, Specific aspects of that experience, but right. you have to do it in order to just be able to understand historical change.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I also wanted to mention, of course, you have figures who, uh, I mentioned Sal Castro, who, you know, uh, born in one biological generation, but really, from political perspective, part of the Chicano generation. But then you have Bird Corona, whom Astoria also, right. From, right. Uh, and Bird, of course, uh, really, a position within the Mexican American generation, not only by Elijah, but politically, mm-hmm. the activist generation. But then he he transitions to the Chicano generation. Right, right. And all the way till he, he died in 2001. He was really part of that generation, and politics was uh, trans, transferred into that generation. And so you have those kinds of interesting uh, crossovers.
0: Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yes, definitely. I appreciate your comments on that and um I wanted to speak now about uh, the testimonial itself as a, a narrative form, because uh, a number of your most recent publications have really, um, you know, focused on this form as a way to tell Chicano history. And uh, so, can you will you describe the the testimonial for us? Uh, you know, what are your, its uh, its kind of components, or what's its form, its purpose, and and how does it differ from biography and say standard historical narrative?
1: uh comes out of the Latin American Jewish tradition that was developed in the 1960s um, in which uh, either scholars or journalists uh, began to start interviewing uh, a new leadership in Latin America, uh, people that were struggling for social change and even engaged in revolutionary action, uh, and to begin to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. Tell their stories in a way that not only would be of interest to an audience, but also that that audience would reflect on those stories and uh, possibly then act on the influence of those stories. And uh, so that's the kind of testimonials that I've done, and we've mentioned South Castro with Corona for two examples, and of course the, the we'll also discuss today, but uh, it is oral history Mm-hmm. uh it, it, it it's an oral history that uh it, it is a auto a biography mm-hmm. that's done via oral history right but right the subject to use that term the subject doesn't really write his or her own story mm-hmm. i as historian interview them and write their story uh and their story is mediated by my dialogue with them. Since mm-hmm. they author the narrative, or at least co-author the narrative, by the very structure of the questions that I'm interested in, left to themselves, it's possible that they would have written slightly different autobiographies. But uh, but the fact is that by choosing activists, uh, most of these people uh, don't have the time, uh, don't have
2: right,
1: right. To, to do their own story, uh, so it comes out of that latin american tradition of a of a of a genre of writing intended to bring about social change in the case of Latin America, perhaps even revolutionary change mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, that's within that influence that I think i've approached these uh testimonials, which again are all oral histories, but they 're not just as told to types of oral history because I, as a historian, not only are doing the interviews, but, you know, doing the questioning, following up on the questioning, but I'm writing the whole thing. And in writing, I'm being creative also in order to put together, a, I try to keep as true to their language as possible, but I'm moving things around. I'm rearranging uh, their narratives because no one tells a narrative in a straight line. Right, <laughs>
2: right.
1: So I have to rearrange it, reorder it. Um, and I also have to... Uh, <laughs> write in a way that makes it appealing. So, among other things, I create dialogue, not that I, just out of thin air, the dialogue is created out of, of my discussions and of, uh, and the responses of the people that I'm interviewing. From there, I structure uh, a dialogue to make the narrative uh, more interesting. So, um, some people think that oral history or doing these testimonies, basically, what you're doing is just slapping the transcript. <laughs> right. It yeah. Tells me they don't know, they know nothing about doing oral history, mm-hmm. and certainly not doing full length testimonies, as I've done. Uh, you just simply don't do that. If you did that, it would just be a mess. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's,
2: so
0: it's, anyone it's that's read uh,
1: and <laughs> uh, But I think uh, also David, I then going back to the point of leadership and, and people making history uh, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in uh, producing those kinds of narratives, these kind of testimonials where, yeah, it's individuals, but it's individuals within a broader social context are struggling uh, for the, uh, you know, for the empowerment of the Mexican-American or Chicano communities and so forth. And, and I think uh, to uh, influence people think about it and uh, maybe they'll finish that narrative by saying, well, maybe I need to pick up the struggle.
2: Mm
0: Right. Yeah, you you mentioned that in and um, both this book and, and in the South Castro book is uh, the that there is an underlying purpose to the testimonial that is, that is in fact to uh, engage its reader and motivate them right to motivate them mm-hmm. to act. So there's a kind of a pedagogical, if you will, um, uh, uh, you know, purpose that underlies it as well. You know, so the documenting of history, as you said, kind of in that oral history tradition. And I was going to mention that you know anyone that's read oral you know oral history transcript as it's been transcribed yeah. from a recording uh, knows how messy those things are. Right. And so indeed yeah. there is a, there is a lot of skill and um, you know, insight that goes into crafting a yeah. coherent yeah. narrative uh, you know, either Weaving that into a, a standard narrative history or, you know, monograph type work or something like this, which is mm-hmm. much more of that mix, as you're saying, between autobiography and, and uh, oral history is, is, uh, and then even, you know, kind of like a social history that's involved too because yeah. you weave all these things together. So,
1: Yeah, autobiographies by their very nature tend to be much more individualistic, individualistically oriented. Uh-huh. A, a testimonial, as I mentioned, has a broader social context. And it is, uh, as I mentioned it, but it, it, is, it, it is a Israelian approach to narrative or producing narrative, I to say based on the uh, views of Paulo Freire, the great Brazilian mm-hmm. educator, where he develops the concept of observe, reflect, and act. Mm-hmm. And I hope that my testimonials uh, <laughs> does that to the reader that they observe uh, the, the, the story, that uh, they reflect on it, and then, as I said, maybe they'll say, maybe I've got to pick up the, the struggle and therefore go up, uh, act on uh, having read the narrative.
0: Right. And when you g- call me, the other thing I'm interested in is, you know, your last uh, few books, if you will, have really kind of focused on this this uh, this narrative form, testimonial in, in particular. Why is that? What's What's led you to you know, essentially you know, you published your first two really of you know, standard uh historical works uh you know a monograph and then a a mixture of kind of the, you know a sort of monograph and a survey which was Mexican Americans of of the leadership of that generation if you will um and then you you started to transition into this direction what what led you uh to this this form and this determination because it seems you're very determined to continue to pursue this mm-hmm.
1: well you know as you know I've done both archival uh, driven uh, books uh, I also have a book called Catholicos Resistance
2: right.
1: and history, which is archivally driven I'm writing now a biography of Father Luis Olivares uh, uh, who was involved in the Sanctuary movement in LA and that's a, a biography not a testimonial mm. uh, and so that's archivally driven so I've done both and um, but I've done a lot of oral history I've done a lot of oral history in my archivally driven books as well mm-hmm. but uh, again I, I um, you know you know, sometimes they began actually as biographies and then became testimonials.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and because I felt that it might be more powerful to tell a story in the, in the subject's own words. And so uh, mm. I, I concluded that maybe that was the kind of genre that I wanted to go into, telling people's stories but in their own words. I thought that what would make it more powerful uh, than a biography where it's mediated by me, the historian. Right. Uh, and so some of it was practicality, a period of time uh, where uh, because of family uh, situations, I knew I could not do as much archival work. And so doing oral history made it was in some ways more feasible. Not that it's less work, but, right. but, but it was more feasible. And so uh, uh, that's that drove me to do that. But after I did like the, the bird Corona look, which was the first one, I just felt that doing it, uh, you know, was a very, could, could be a very empowering type of narrative. And so right. then I, as I went on to others, including the Sal Castro, I mean, to me, I had to tell Sal Castro's voice in his own voice because his charisma, his, mm-hmm. his um, his, um, uh, his, his great speaking ability, uh, it, I, it would not have been done justice in a biography.
2: Right, right.
1: In his own words. And people have told me, you know, you've captured the way Sal spoke, and, and I feel good about that because that was my intent. Again, again it's not just that I'm just. Looking pasting the transcript onto the printed page.
2: Right. I do A lot
1: of moving things around and creating dialogue and so forth. But, but I kept true to uh, as much as I could to Sal's way of speaking. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's very powerful.
0: So, uh, I, yeah, that, that, that book had to be done in Southwood. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, and then, so this book, moving on to the Chicano generation, uh, this one in particular is about three key leaders within the Chicano movement in Los Angeles. So it's rooted in Los Angeles, and we focus on the, the experiences and, and narratives of, uh, Raul Ruiz, uh, Gloria. <laughs> Carriánes, right, and Mm -hmm. Rosalio uh, Muñoz. Will you discuss why uh, you chose to focus on Los Angeles, and then we'll use that to transition, maybe, into these three uh, individuals in particular?
1: Well, you know, I'm not from LA, but I've become an LA historian because I know a lot
2: about
1: LA. Mm -hmm. And uh, LA, of course, was, by some estimates, the political capital of the Chicano movement. Uh, every manifestation, every struggle of the movement to a large degree uh, occurred in Los Angeles. Uh, not that it didn't occur in other places, but certainly LA was a major uh, focus of the movement, and it, those movements influenced the movement in other locations as well. That's number one. Number two, the practicality. You know, from Santa Barbara to LA is, what, 100 miles or less. <laughs> right. My ability to go back and forth interviewing uh these three uh was uh, part of that uh, choice of Los Angeles. Uh so the two together I think when to you know came together. But of course LA was a major uh, pick, uh, part of a uh, of the uh Chibana movement. Uh and this is a book that as I mentioned the introduction has a long history to it. I actually started this project you know, over twenty years ago and I first started interviewing uh uh Roe Reese and um I thought it, I began the idea of maybe including Judy Baca in it and
2: stuff.
1: She was not accessible. And, uh, and I, I actually was going to do Jesus Tredino and a and filmmaker, and I did a, lots of interviews with Jesus, but then I guess Jesus, uh, maybe thought, well, you know, maybe it'll be too long. <laughs> before uh, Mario Garcia gets his book out. So he went out on his own, he wrote his own autobiography It was published by I Book I said, Well that's great. Jesus. I'm glad you got your story out of me I but uh, obviously I couldn't I couldn't include his story in my project. Uh, so it, it took a number of years and of course I was doing other projects that were a little bit ahead of this particular project, but mm-hmm. you know, I always kept doing, kept, kept doing the interviews and finally focused on, uh, besides Raul Reed, uh and the reason I chose Raul, of course, because Raul was the, I call him the renaissance man of the... The Chigano movement he was he he was at almost he was at so many different activities he was involved in, you know, in the student movement he was involved in the walkouts he was involved in la feminist party in cat la um in the anti war movement and of course he edited and published
0: uh la Raza
1: magazine which was the uh, most influential Chigano movement publication in los angeles and and elsewhere also Roe was a natural to do mm-hmm. and um Rosalía Munoz was also natural because, of course, he was the key leader of the uh, major Chicano anti Vietnam War movement that culminated in August 29, 1971, in 20 to 30,000 mostly Chicano protests against the war in East Right. largest protest organized during the movement, and it was the largest anti war protest by any minority group. So Rosalía was a natural, too. And eventually, I I, I focused on Gloria Arianez. And in a way, she was a natural, too. She, Gloria, who's, who's less well-known in the movement, but hopefully will be better known as the results of the book, uh, has a very powerful story to tell. She was the only so-called minister of the Brown Berets in Los Angeles. And, of course, the Brown Berets originated in L.A., and that was considered the national chapter. Many, many other Brown Berets chapters spread throughout the Southwest and beyond the Southwest, but the LA was the national chapter with Prime Minister David Sanchez and the Minister of Defense and the Minister of That, and the Minister of That. But Gloria was part of the in- initial cohort of women who joined the Brown Berets in the late 60s, and she rose to become the only female minister of the Brown Berets, Minister mm-hmm. of Education. And so she has a very powerful story to tell within a very important Chicano movement organization that was considered uh, perhaps the, the most radical or one of the most militant of the Chicano movement groups and what you get out of Gloria's story is that yes, yes of course it was not the most radical and um, you had a lot of guys in it but in many ways it was the women who helped the Brown together it was the women who did the hard work uh, of the Brown Berets. I mean, they published, it were basically, Gloria was basically the editor, although she, called Beta Sanchez, was well, given the credit as the editor, but they published their, I mean,
2: their,
1: their newspaper. Uh, she was the one, she and the women are the one that, that put it together. And, but then also, she tells her story of working and putting together the uh, Brown Beret pre uh, clinic in East LA. El Barrio Free Clinic. And, uh, she and the women were the uh, bedrock of that free clinic, and they, they operated for over a year, a year and a half. And they, they did tremendous service to the uh, community in East LA by providing medical services through the volunteer efforts of doctors and nurses. But it was the women and Gloria who. Put it all together and and put these these services. Uh, And to me, in looking at the history of the Brown Berets in L.A., that free clinic was probably the greatest contribution that the Brown Berets did in its history with respect to the Chicano movement, uh, because it reached people in a way that none of the other efforts of the Brown Berets could could people could reach. I mean, they treated hundreds, if not thousands, of people in that clinic. Yet Gloria held it together, but. You know, she eventually, in the first quarter, women left because of the sexism by the guys in the in the berets. And, and the book goes into some of those encounters and some of those conflicts, including the threat of rape. Uh, mm-hmm. and so it's a very, very powerful story, and uh, the story that uh, needs to be told. And uh, she mentions that uh, very few of the other women in the initial cohort of the brown berets, you know, you know were uh, very reluctant to tell their stories. So she said, "I'm, I'm telling my story, but I'm telling my story for them as well.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
1: hope I will encourage them to begin to tell their stories." And so she's a, she's a tremendous person and um, very powerful, and uh, someone who suffered a lot as a result of the movement. And uh, well, they all did. They, they all, uh, they, their lives were changed dramatically by the movement. And uh, but uh, what I mentioned in, in in my introduction is that uh, they they all remain committed people in one way or another. They they never betrayed their ideals that they developed during the movement of struggle for social justice and community empowerment and ethic uh, integrity and so forth. I think they they always stayed committed they never they never look back and said, "Oh well, those were just my fanciful youth days, and now you know I'm much more established and so no they they've always always been committed to the struggle
0: right and um you know, what intrigues me is uh, again we're the, the 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 narrative one of the narrative themes that flows throughout the book is is this focus on leadership and what i what i started thinking about is as i was reading through you know these three different narratives uh, of these three people and their exceptional lives uh were that you know they come from such diverse backgrounds, and, and the Chicano movement itself was so many things, right? To so many different people. You've, you've you've begun to mention a number of the different components of the the movement. You know, there is the uh, student you know component to the organization, both at the, the high school level, the, the blowouts, the walkouts. Uh, you know, then you had the the university component, uh, fighting for you know representation and uh, the development of Chicano uh, studies curriculum and programs and, and spaces on campus. You had the anti-war. Movement, The brown berets, uh, and and many other things, and so considering that, and considering. The very diverse and, and backgrounds of these three. What is it that we that we learn about leadership by studying their lives? Because I think that uh, sometimes I think when we, we hear the term leadership, we think elite, and right? we think that these um, you know someone was either you know uh, a lot of times it's associated with people that were born into either some type of privilege, privilege, or were predisposed somehow, um, predestined maybe to use a very lofty term in some way to a leadership role, but but uh, certainly by studying their lives, at least initially, there's nothing perhaps from their initial uh, very, like, say, childhood or birth. Uh, you know, they, they weren't born to people that were that necessarily were where um, you would you would necessarily identify them as their Destined or born to be a leader, but yet you identify commonalities in their lives, and so we discussed that. What is it that we learn about how leadership, or how people develop into leaders, or how they they you know become activists? What What are the components that you found that that led them to these trajectories, these tracks? Well,
1: that's a very interesting question, and um, you know, that's why I suggest, of course, that. Uh, there 's a process of becoming a leader a leader you 're not born a leader a mm-hmm. gene, but I think it has to do with socialization and that socialization, as I suggest in the book, begins even before they become political activists mm-hmm. uh, so I look at their family lives and that 's why I ask them to first begin to discuss their childhood memories, their family memories, and so forth and uh, what What you draw from that is that each one of them, you know, had certain influences uh, in their early uh, upbringing that uh, began to influence them to, you know, assert themselves, to be proud of themselves, to uh, not accept being put down for being Mexican, so forth and so on. And... uh, And even though all three are very, have very distinct family backgrounds, I think there is something that, in part, uh, uh, connects them. Or And, it, and, and, and it, it doesn't have to be just family socialization. It could be socialization in the school. That
0: comes to mm-hmm. in the sorry,
1: Ariana story, Ariana's <laughs> story uh Although her father was always telling her, "You know, you're a chicano, you're a
0: chicano <laughs> right, right I noticed that,
1: uh, and so that's something that was really ingrained in her and she didn't fully understand that and so but but I think uh, in school then you know she was uh, there, there was a lot of tension in between the whites and the uh, mexican Americans in her high school in el monte el monte high school and um uh, and then there was one teacher who began to try to bridge the the gap and he began to help the Chicanos organized amongst themselves, and uh, he chose Gloria to be one of two representatives to the first uh, uh, Chicano youth leadership conferences that Al Castro was involved with, going back to the early 60s. And so that helped to create her, I think, her sense of leadership. Uh, I think the the other two even more directly within the the family, you know, I think, uh, Monroe's family, uh, a sense of, uh, you know, standing up for, Uh, His rights and so forth uh, through, at least through his mother. Uh, His mother sending him to Catholic school. The kind of you know make sure that he got as good an education as possible. And I think Raul also was just you know I don't want to do a phonetic analysis, but I mean he was always a kind of a a babbler. You know he was uh, the kind of a rebel type. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rosario, of course, had. A strong, strong parental influence, strong religious influence, uh, uh, and his father—both his parents were well-educated, they were college-educated. His father went on to get a PhD in education from USC, so we had that in his background, you know. So his his family socialization was one of uh, you know uh, community leadership, and so forth. And of course, that began to emerge very early on when he. Uh, runs for the in u c l a and becomes elected a student body uh, president right mm-hmm. to be involved in those emotional problems so i think i guess what I'm suggesting is that leadership is a result of of socialization already in your early childhood and your teenage years and early adult years and and then in a particular context uh, that emerges in terms of uh learning yourself to be part of a struggle and to be part of a leadership of that struggle. Yes, I know that. I mean, there's this sense that sometimes leadership, you know, equals elitism, often said by people who themselves want to be leaders. But I'll <laughs> uh, misunderstand the But the fact of the matter is, as I said earlier, all movements, social, political movements, are, you know, they have leadership. And of course, you want some of that leadership. And some of that leadership is grassroots leadership.
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That
1: was from the farm workers' struggle, uh, when first corona began to organize the undocumented. He he you know tried to uh, to develop uh leadership out of the undocumented immigrants themselves and and it's not like uh, Raul and Gloria and Rosario came from these blue blooded families. Mm-hmm. These are not Kennedys, Rockefellers, these people that are born to leadership. These are right. Donald's, uh working class, lower middle class, uh, who are also facing a lot of uh, racial and ethnic discrimination and so forth and so on. So uh, they're not, uh, you know, part of some kind of uh, separate elitist uh, families and so no, forth. They're, they're people who have been, uh, as I mentioned, you know, have developed conviction, developed uh Uh, sense of uh, values of uh, trying to achieve social justice and they also have a very important characteristic that they they have discipline and they have persistence. They understood what Bert Corona often told the activists of the the movement. Uh, He said if you're going to be involved in struggle you have to realize that struggle is going to take a long time. It's not going to happen overnight. And so forth and so on. Some understood that, like these three that I write about, others less so. And, you know, change didn't happen in a short period of time, an academic year or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then they said, well, I guess things don't change and they drop down. But uh, so I admire Raoul's and and Goliath's sense of persistence, a sense of dedication for the long haul.
0: Right, and on that persistence and, and dedication, that 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 longer perspective that they had, you uh, label this that they they had a uh, collectively a type of militant pragmatism. Right, there's a a revolutionary aspect to Chicano ideology, and. Um, and however, that, I think that's mostly what, what people focus on. I think that has to do a lot with why or why not people identify, even today, perhaps even youth millennials and, and whatnot, as Chicano because it's very politically charged and it's associated with right third world revolutionary struggles, uh, you know, the communism, Marxism, etc. Uh, yet again, you label these as these three as pragmatists, militant pragmatists. Will you will you explain that a bit?
1: Uh, There was a lot of ideological influences on the movement. The concept of Aztlán, the lost homeland of uh, the Chicanos in the South West, and uh, and uh, a lot. Some of that was more romanticized, perhaps, and so forth. And uh, uh, it's not that they weren't influenced by Chicano nationalism, what we'll just call cultural nationalism, but. You said these three that uh struggles had to be uh practical, had to be pragmatic, they had to be at the grassroots uh you and ideology uh, could only take you so far. You had the problems in the schools, like in the blowouts, you had a lack of political representation, hence lot of parties. You had young people, young young boys, young men who are being enemy up. Uh, into the military to go fight an unnecessary war in Vietnam, how to stop it, Uh, hence Rosalio Muñoz and the Chicano anti-war movement and so forth, and uh, uh, how to help people in the community that needed things like health care, hence uh, Gloria and the uh, Ramborei Free Clinic, and so, in that sense, they they are pragmatic, but they're they're driven by a militant ethos of bringing about an empowerment to the communities, of challenging the status quo, challenging the way things are. So, in that sense, they're militant, right. uh, and but they express that militancy in a, in very pragmatic ways, and that's that's what I came to it be impressed by and admire the work of these three, that they were not just outspouting ideologies and uh, revolutionary slogans and so forth and so on. Uh, They they saw what needed to be done to try to bring about concrete change Mm -hmm. and I think that's where their pragmatism um, uh, is involved and so um, (coughs) I think that uh, I think that's probably true for a lot of other movement activists, you know. And I think the more we examine the you got a movement in other communities, and so forth. Many of these struggles have the larger kind of uh, ideological uh, coloration, but in the end, you have to struggle against, you know, basic issues and basic needs. And so I think mm-hmm. we learn more and more about the movement, especially in different locations. I think we see that uh, those kind of struggles take place. Like the two conferences that I've had as you know in the Chicano movement mm-hmm. uh, that's a lot of the papers that presented show those kind of very practical struggles in different communities. Uh, in San Antonio, the labor movement, the Chicano, the labor movement, they were influenced by the movement and then they, that just helped propel them even more in terms of trying to get contracts and higher wages and so forth. So that's we see that kind of magnetism being exhibited
0: there um, uh, also right and the, you know that comment just leads me directly to um, uh, my next question and I know we need a we, we need to wrap up but I would definitely want you to you know comment on where you see uh, movement on I mean sorry um the the development and progress of um, or direction I think is a better word the direction of the scholarship on the Chicano movement headed as you mentioned you, you organized two uh, so far it's now an annual conference that's on the movement uh, and then of course you've published uh, now a number of works that address with key figures within the movement and so you're you're very close in you know being able to analyze you know um, what you've seen say you know over the last you know ten years or decade or so is is really scholarship on the movement has begun to flower and and really develop so where else do you see it going that is the scholarship on the movement
1: Well what I'm seeing uh, I see the scholarship developing and as I, I see it presented at the two uh, conferences that I've organized here at UC Santa Barbara. The third, which is coming up in February 27, which is now called the Sal Castro Memorial Conference on the Emerging Historiography of the Giana Movement, I see uh, diversity. I think that's first and foremost how people are interpreting the movement in very diverse ways. Mm-hmm. In terms of diverse um, actors, if you will, uh, bringing in a, a greater uh, diverse group of activists that uh, we were, we might have been less uh, uh, aware of. Like I mentioned, uh, the labor movement in LA that identified with the movement. Uh, we had a trouble paper at the the first conference of uh, also the labor movement up in. Uh, in Sacramento, but also identifying with the movement and so forth, so a greater role, exploring the role of women in the movement and so forth. Uh, and so a diversity in terms of uh, who the political actors were, <clears throat> diversity in terms of uh, locations, of the, how the movement manifested itself in a variety of locations, you know, not just necessarily the big cities like L.A. or California, mm-hmm. but... In, in smaller communities, Oxnard, and I've mentioned, you know, Sacramento. Uh, people are doing the role of the movement in South Texas, mm-hmm. and um, so that kind of diversity. And um, uh, but I think driven by an appreciation of the historical importance of the Chicano movement, it is in effect a revisionist. Perspective, and by that I mean is that the, the movement into the 80s and 90s, and even to the first decade of the century, oh, was getting a bad rap, so I can use that term, by other Chicano study scholars. We often, and still do, ask these litmus tests of the movement. And if they failed at this test, the suggestion is the movement was not important.
2: That's why
1: these driven by issues of gender and sexuality.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if the question is how how was the movement with respect. The role of women, gender, and if it's uh, either no or if it wasn't as good as it should be, well, then obviously the movement wasn't all that important. Uh, how did the movement deal with gays, uh, lesbians, etc.? Well, the movement didn't really deal lot with that well. Then, guess I guess the movement wasn't altogether that great. It's the wrong questions. Historians don't ask not, Don't ask these kind of little of history. It's a misreading of history. It's mm-hmm. a second of Kind of voicing onto history your own contemporary perspectives and views of obviously the past and present are intertwined. you can sometimes force history in a very uh you know in a way that really doesn't uh, fully understand what was going on in that past period uh so and that's what I mean by revision that this, this kind of kind of almost grading that you're to move on from a gender and sexuality perspective that we've we've seen in the last 30 years, this new group of scholars, many of them young scholars now, graduate students, are coming back and saying, "No, no, we're not going to answer that mythos. Yes, we're going to explore issues of gender and sexuality.
2: Right, right. But at
1: the same time, to understand how important the Chicano movement was. Right, right. All of us, in one form or another, uh, are are." Um, of death to the movement. I mean, the, when you think about the movement, opened up so many opportunities that people have met
2: right. Certainly.
1: I've never had. have never had. Where, where did this come from? Like we talk about contemporary, Latino political power. What's the roots for that? Where did it come from? I think it's from the argument that strong movement helped to create that because it, for the first time, I mentioned in my introduction. And by extension, other Latinos into national political actors, right. uh, even the, you know into the seventies. So I think what 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 I'm, I'm very uh, excited about is that a lot of these uh, you know, new uh, studies are generated by people, especially younger scholars, who uh, you know are embracing the movement. It's a very important historical movement. That doesn't mean that they're not critical.
0: Exactly. Critical
1: right. Studies, and but they're engaged studies,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and. Uh, They're not asking these uh, these false litmus tests. So I think diversity and with this new appreciation of the movement, um, you know, I'm very excited about it. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, in our February conference coming up, February 27th, it'll be at least 25 presentations. And they're all, you know, different uh, subjects and themes. Um, And so... Is really, I mean, there's something uh, now that we can call Chicano movement studies. Right. And I uh, mm-hmm. like that at these Council conferences. So, whatever work I've done recently on the Chicano movement is, 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 you know, it's part of that is to add to that and to encourage you to others. Like these three stories that I tell in the Chicano generation, these are all three possible uh, opportunities for, you know, um, younger, enterprising historians to say, well, okay, I'm going to do a full biography of Raul Ruiz or a full biography of Gloria Arianes or a full biography of Rosario Ruiz and they're deserving of that. So what I've done is laid the foundation for those future biographies because they can draw from my oral histories and the testimonials and then build on them by going into more archival uh, research or
2: right.
1: have more more oral histories around the people that work with these three and so forth. So hopefully that that, that will occur.
0: Great, right? I totally agree. Thank you for that comment. And uh, but, you know, I know you're pressed for time. I did want to give you the opportunity to mention anything else that is as we we wrap up that you're currently working on. That's a you know project you have that's developing. that You like our audience to to hear about.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I, I I mentioned that my current <clears throat> excuse me, my current project that I've been working on actually for a number of years is a biography, not not an oral history or a testimonial, but a biography of Father Luis Olivares who uh, in in the 1980s became best known because he was the, the heart and soul of the sanctuary movement in uh, in Los Angeles, out of his parish La Placita Church in downtown Los Angeles, and he in 1985 declared his uh, church a sanctuary for the uh, Central American refugees that were coming as a result of the wars in you know, El Salvador and Guatemala, and then two years later, did what no other sanctuary movement had done. He declared sanctuary of La Placita for undocumented Mexican immigrants. Uh-huh. And right. in between, you know, he worked in terms of trying to end the U.S. involvement in in Central America by supporting right wing governments and death squads and so forth and uh but I tell you the whole story from childhood in San Antonio to his years in the seminary learning to, to become a Croatian priest, to becoming a top official of his order. But then in 1975, by his own admission, undergoing a conversion when he uh, uh, meets Cesar Chavez and he begins to work with the farm workers. And then in the later 70s, out of his parish, he goes to become a parish priest in East L.A. At, uh, uh, and there he becomes a key leader of an organization referred to as UNO, United Neighborhoods Organization, and um, he learns how his skills as an organizer and strategies, and then in 1981, when he transfers to La Plafica Church, it's the time that the refugees are coming, and the 80s, of course, a big wave of undocumented immigrants, and he applies what he's learned earlier in his new. Converted attitude to progressivism and liberation theology to embrace and to support, uh, you know, the poor and the oppressed. In this case, the, the refugees and the undocumented. And uh, he continues that till um, the end of his life. He died in uh, 1993. And uh, so I, I obviously never had a chance to interview him because I did not become interested in his life until later. I knew of him, but. Uh, but uh, I, have, I have not at the time that he died, I wasn't, uh, you know, working on his uh, biography. But it's a, it's a remarkable life. And it, it, it's not only in terms of, again, expression of a new kind of leadership, in this case, rigid, religious, spiritual leadership, that we also need to examine. But it's, what he was involved in is also... Uh, Looking at faith-based movements, mm-hmm. and out of the La Placita Church and earlier with Uno, you have these faith-based movements that were very important. But, that, that uh, in the case of Uno, accomplished very practical uh, reforms that uh, in the East LA community. And then, of course, in, with the, in the 80s, only about to it, work with the refugees and the undocumented, deal with people who were being victimized and who uh, had no no rights, really, in this country, and to begin to, to talk about immigrant rights, and, uh, and so it was through a faith-based movement, as that's, uh, as that's developed. So there's a lot of different facets to exploring Olivanic's life, but he was a very charismatic and uh, and just a totally committed uh, leader, but a leader working within within the Catholic Church in in his case. And so that's another question of leadership that we need to also explore
0: Uh, uh, if if one is interested in the role of leadership in Chicano history. Certainly. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, Mario, I I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, discuss the Chicano generation uh, on New Books and Latino Studies. And uh, just best of luck in the the, the rest of your studies, and, and hopefully we'll look forward to ta- speaking with you again.
1: Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it, and good luck on your work.
0: Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Mario T. Garcia, author of The Chicano Generation, Testimonials of the Movement, published by the University of California Press in 2015. If you'd like to reach us at New Books in Latino Studies, you may email us at Studies at gmail.com or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Garcia's work, We encourage you to purchase The Chicano Generation on Amazon by following the link to it on our New Books and Latino Studies page. Thanks again.